Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. Well, I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1, or um, Kim has graciously put the scripture on the screen as I read it. You can follow along. And uh, I'm excited for what God will show us this evening. So I'll read the the whole chapter, then we'll pray, and by God's grace, the, the, the latter half of the chapter will be our text this evening. James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because, like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion 
is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask for your peace for all of us here as we study your word. Would you allow our ears to hear your word? And would you allow us to focus, to concentrate on its meaning, to understand it, and then to apply it? I ask for your grace that your message would be heard, that all of us in this room would forget the preacher and hear only your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Dirk Willems was born in Gelderland, Netherlands in the late 1500s. He was baptized as an adult, as a believer. At the, at the time, this was a, a controversial doctrine. And several in his home followed Christ in believer's baptism. He grew as a Christian and raised a family. Years later, he was officially condemned for heresy by the Roman Catholic Church and was arrested early in the year 1569. Willems was then held prisoner in a castle tower, subsisting on scant food, but refusing still to renounce his baptism. Through persistent toil, he eventually knotted together enough rags to escape out his window onto the castle moat, lightly frozen over in the Dutch spring. One of the prison guards, witnessing his escape, began chasing him across the thin ice. Because Willems had become so emaciated, he easily scampered across the moat to safety. The guard, however, healthy and weighed down with armor, broke through the ice, crying out as he plunged to certain death. Then, instead of making good his escape, Willems stopped and turned back to save his captor's life. Moments later, Willems was led back into the castle to await judgment. The result being that he was brutally burned at the stake on the 16th of May, 1569. Good Christians who are faithful in all other ways might seek to limit the extremes of expressing Christian love in the world. This, however, is a dangerous practice because God's work in our lives and our work, our work for God's sake in the world are inseparable. What is it like to follow Christ? What work is involved? How ought we to respond to his word? Before we dig in, let me confess publicly that my life is not the answer to those questions. You know this without my saying it, but I am already convicted by this passage, convicted about my life and the way I lead my family. So that's my first caveat. The second caveat is that I will largely read this sermon from these pages I printed off. I wrote this sermon, and I'm going to read it. I don't do this all the time. Uh, if that bothers you, I apologize. Please forgive me, uh, and pray with me for our pastor's safe return. So with those two out of the way, we'll set the stage for the book of James. We can guess, along with most scholars that you and I would trust, that this epistle was one of the first few to be written in the New Testament age, along with uh, books like Galatians and 1 Thessalonians. These letters have a few things in common, and taken together, they generally suggest an atmosphere of making big adjustments to life as a Christian. This life is unique because of its contrast with the culture. 
This is a message we still need 19 centuries later. James begins this letter with encouragement and trial and testing. As an aside, or actually, it's important to remember that like John, he writes this epistle not with straight line linear logic, but by building on several themes in a cyclical upward fashion. We'll catch a glimpse of this method tonight. I find it helpful to make a list of the topics as they go by and how they change as, they, as we come back to them. There's wisdom to be found in the layering and, and, and in how he structures it. So from his launching point on trials and testing in the first half of this chapter, he moves to our text this evening, and at the end of that text, the beginning of chapter 2, he moves to confronting partiality in the, in the assembly. So as we study together, don't forget that all these topics are interrelated. And if you want a gold mining exercise, go home and study the whole book. It's magnificent. So where we'll jump in is verse 18. Verse 18 wraps up a, a different topic, as I just said, but verse 19 references the topic in verse 18. So verse 18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. From here through the end of the chapter, James never allows the reader's attention to stray very far from this word of truth. I did mention I was going to read it. So, yeah. We could spend all night digging into this one thing. What we should understand here is that God generates within the believer a new creation by means of the word of truth. The method we aren't really told a lot about, but what we are told is that it ha- uh, what we are told um, is throughout the New Testament. For instance, in 2 Timothy 2, you, however, you, Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we see this is a renewing process originating in the word. I'll read one more passage from uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus says, Sanctify them, the believers, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also might be sanctified in the truth. God uses his word to work in our lives. In fact, we might say that God's primary work in the believer's life is through his word. So these thoughts are what James references when he says in verse 19, this you know. So 19 says, um... I've been stacking the pages, of course, which means that I'm not keeping them in the right order. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Okay, so, as I said earlier, um, this is a theme we can trace through the rest of the chapter, the word of truth. Okay, so verse 19 shows us the believer's preemptive attitude toward the word in three parts, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. We'll look at each one briefly. The word hear literally means to hear, 
to allow the sound and to enter the ear and to perceive that it's sound. But you know, you already understand, that if there were a deaf person in the room, they would not need miraculous healing in order to obey the, the scripture. So, we can assume safely that uh, what James is implying here is an attitude of listening or paying attention. Listening to the word is an old theme in the Bible, and there is an Old Testament word that can help us, but we'll come back to that later, as James does. For now, keep it in mind that we're to do this, this listening quickly, immediately, without delay. Okay, secondly, so to, slow to speak. Jesus says this in Luke 6, The evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We'll learn in a minute that the use of the tongue is one indicator of spiritual health. That self-discipline in our speech can be fundamental to both knowing ourselves and learning our Savior. While the previous command is to listen and be quick about it, this command is to delay, to proceed cautiously, if at all. And that applies also to anger, which is the next verse. Anger also comes up again later. In understanding James' introduction, instruction about anger, it's helpful to conjure a mental image of worldly righteousness. Thinking like our culture in 2023, what do you do? How do you behave when you know you are right and the person opposite you is dead wrong? How do you respond? Like it or not, interacting with the people around you, as God intends, does not look like a rant post that renders all opposition to your viewpoint senseless, as if such a thing were possible. No, no, remember that anger breeds anger, and self-righteousness is not God's righteousness. This is important to remember that God desires his work. That's everything we're about to learn. God desires his work to be acted out in a certain way. Thankfully, God reserves perfect judgment for himself and calls us to reflect him in this world in a limited fashion, not in his wrath, but in his love. So keep that in mind as we continue. In verse 21, which I'll read here in a second, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. So in verse 21, James introduces the topic of purity after after these topics that he's introduced already. Almost exactly rehearsing the letter to the church is recorded for us in Acts 15. So in Acts 15, he says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, the church in Jerusalem, to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, for things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. You can see how they sort of fit together. As Pastor told us two weeks ago, the filthiness James speaks of here and in Acts is representative of all the trappings of pagan idolatry popular at the time. This is easily applied to the 21st century. It includes the self-righteous typing we just learned about, but also anything else in our world that calls us to consuming focus diverted from God and his word. By contrast, God's word of truth calls us 
to exempt ourselves from the pull of the world, from its popular worship and all that goes with it. So what does common culture worship? What golden images do they set up? What platitudes on everyone's tongue inform this pursuit of the wind? How should we respond? By putting aside. Putting aside or laying aside is a phrase evoking an athlete in preparation for the, for the next race. To take the world off like an extra garment. That's our response. In putting off this evil, we must also accept the implanted word. Like the good soil of Jesus' parable. This word has tremendous power to alter our lives. Remember 2 Timothy uh, uh, bringing you to salvation, right? Um, uh, giving you wisdom, which has brought you to salvation. One commentary author, Dan McCartney, says of this verse, the entirety of chapter 1, verse 21, bears a strong resemblance to First Peter, which we just studied, which likewise compares the word of God to seed that produces godliness, and which likewise enjoins the response of putting off evil by laying hold of that word. And the end result in both passages is salvation. As a result, this one verse packs within it a large amount of gospel teaching. The necessity of, one, repudiating the abundance of evil within, two, humble recognition of help in doing so, that's grace, three, decisive response to the gospel, that's faith, and four, recognition of the power of the gospel to rescue the believer. All of these are, of course, necessary aspects of genuine faith. Again, that's from Dan McCartney. Following our theme, we're starting to get a clearer picture of the life of the believer. There is a symmetry to God's work in our lives and God working out his will through our lives. There's a reason for that. It's because his work through the word of truth is transforming us, altering us, altering our very being. In fact, in verse 22, James continues... Uh, on this theme of being, of being transformed. So he says, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not mere, merely hearers who delude, them, delude themselves. This phrase, prove yourselves, is actually one word in the Greek. It could be translated as be. Be as a command. You, be. In the original, it's the same word as become in verse 25, and we'll come to that in a minute. What is he calling us to be? Well, he confirms here that Quick to hear from verse 19 does not mean quick to allow the sound in your ear, but is actually a listen akin to the Old Testament word shema. So we've come, we've come full circle now to, to, to listening again. Sometimes translated behold or hear, it's actually in the reading that Doug did this evening. Um, behold or hear, the word shema means to affix one's attention, to give heed, to yield, to obey, a very special task for the ear. This is nowhere more obvious than in the passage that Jesus quoted in our, in our reading this evening, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. That's Shema. Listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord our God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. 
You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you hear the utter obsession in that passage? God is describing a good listener both in Deuteronomy and here in James by saying, attach your focus, your mind, heart, and soul to this word. Don't put it down. The phrase, doer of the word, could be translated, word doer. That is who we are to be. It is a creature whose nature and actions can only be accurately described in terms of God's word. Imagine that for yourself. Are you starting to get the point? It's at this point that I started to get very convicted. This listening believer is contrasted to the self-deluding forgetter. Uh, if you've been tracking with our life group study, you'll remember these verses in First John. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You know this from experience. After beholding the truth about yourself, further disobedience requires self-deception. There is a danger in talking back to the word, in reasoning away, the things that we learn about God and ourselves. Remember, we are to listen quickly and put off speaking. This is a good time to pause and ask ourselves a few questions. First, have you responded to the gospel? It doesn't matter how long you've been in church, the most important question confronting us is, do you believe? For the believer, are you listening to the word? Would your family and friends say that you are any more like Jesus now than five or ten years ago? What part of your life might you be holding back or hiding? What do you wish God could not see? Over the next few verses, James sets a contrast between the forgetful hearer from verse 22 and a word-doer, a worker of the word. He begins in verses 23 and 24 with an analogy. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. From once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Contrary to how I've usually heard this preached, this is not necessarily describing a fool who forgets that his hair is messy by the time he gets to work. It's not wrong either, But I think this is uh, different, what James is doing here. He's saying that mirrors of the time were made of hammer-beaten metal. Any reflection at all is distorted, hazy, and discolored. Nothing like mirrors today. It's not a question of, how could this fool forget himself? This is really an analogy which James expects to be obvious. When you look at your face in a beaten bronze mirror, it's an extremely imperfect representation of reality. So imperfect that it does not make a lasting impression. Scripture, on the other hand, is a perfect impression. It's as if this Bible is the revelation of God given to us for this express purpose purpose to show himself to us. Of course, that's what the Bible really is. Here he describes the believer as looking intently. The word picture here is of a person stooping over to inspect. Curiously, like a child looking at a bug on the sidewalk. You've all seen that before. 
He's saying, peer into this book intently. Perceive within its pages your Savior. Perceive yourself as you are seen by God and live it. As it's put here, abide by it. We've come full circle. God generates a new creation within each of us by and through the word. Don't miss this connection. The phrase in this verse, not having become, is one word in the Greek, and it's the same word translated, prove yourselves, back in verse 22. In the New Testament, it's most often translated being made or becoming, and here carries a sense of perpetual tempering or fashioning. Yet again, James sets before us two options that we could become, be. The thrust of this verse is that we are constantly, constantly being transformed. We are always being discipled by someone or something. The ongoing outcome of word transformation is that we are made more and more into effective word doers. World transformation makes us more and more forgetful of his word and thus less and less able to do his work. So if the forgetful hearer describes you or me, perhaps temporarily, the question is, what mirror are you gazing in? If you're not memorizing and meditating on scripture, What are you rehearsing in your mind throughout the day? What would God have you change about the substance of your intake and your attitude toward it? Could an observer describe your time with God's word as a dedicated, focused, stooping over to glean every morsel? And just like that, James moves to application. The cyclical nature of his writing continues and the application flows directly from what precedes it. In other words, we're going right back to where we started, which is speech. James instructs us on the tongue several times in his epistle, most uh, most notably in chapter 3, when he compares the tongue to a horse's bridle or a ship's rudder. In other words, contrary to its relative size, the tongue has the immense power controlling the rest of the person. The fact is, almost without exception or further contemplation, we largely believe what comes out of our mouths. We trust our tongues more than we do our memories. As we tell a story, factually, our brain rewrites the memory we are recalling to more closely match the version coming out of our mouth. The key to understanding this is that the tongue can be used for both good or evil. If we are to believe God, our speech is fundamental to living our faith. It is what we're doing begins with. And so, in the final verse of the chapter, we're reminded that the way God sees is often anathema to our own. That often the things he wants us to do seem antithetical to what we desire, even when we desire good things. This final application seems, uh, like James' inclusion of speech or anger, it seems like he's coming from left field. But when you think on it, this description is not that far from the life of Christ. The word here translated visit means to care for, to concern oneself with. This is not a social call. 
This is a nurturing expression of Jesus' love for the multitude. I'll read again what I quoted earlier from 1 John. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Often, without realizing it, we begin to think that expressing God's love to people in the world and remaining pure from the world are at cross-purposes. But here, James tells us they are related. Jesus' work of disciple-making seemed to others a whole lot like just hanging out with those of low repute. Admittedly, his observers were quite hostile. But even you or I could look at his ministry and wonder, wonder at how little time he spent with pious believers. For example, good parents seeking to protect our children from harm or temptation can end up disobeying God in the process. Christians, we are not called to live in closeted safety, but rather to live as ambassadors, expressing in no uncertain terms the love that Christ has for those unloved. This is pure religion. The story of the story of Rosaria Butterfield is a wonderful summary of this passage. She was a self-proclaimed happy lesbian liberal tenured professor of English when she launched a research project uh, into the problem of Jesus believers in their right-wing politics. In fact, she started reading the Bible. In 1997, she published an article in a local newspaper on Jesus, patriarchy, and politics. She says the article was so contentious, she had to put a ream-sized box on either side of her desk. In the one, she placed fan mail, and the other, hate mail. Until one day, a letter arrived that did not belong in either box. It was from Ken Smith, a pastor in her town, who had read her article. Ken wrote her a letter asking questions rather than angrily throwing answers and reasons in her face. In the letter, Ken invited her to join him and his wife for dinner at their house. Over the ensuing years, she says they became friends. Quote, they entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them, and they did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. But she kept reading the Bible, resisting her growing conviction that it was inspired. Then several years after their first encounter, again, several years after their first encounter, on a random Sunday morning, she decided to attend Ken's church, showing up in a butch haircut, standing out like a sore thumb. And she went back, again and again, facing down conviction about her sin. Then, and I quote, she says, One Lord's Day, one Lord's Day Ken preached on John seven seventeen. If anyone wills to do God's will, 
he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of life, understanding came before obedience. But the verse promised understanding after obedience. I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding of day. When I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian or has all this been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? Then, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. She later married a pastor, and they have several children, both natural and adopted. It turns out that the sanctity of your life and home has far more to do with the care you show the unworthy or unremarkable than it does with the assumed piety of your social circle. Maintaining purity is about transformation, not isolation. After all, such were some of you and me. So, final questions. Who do you know that is without Christ's influence? What child do you know that is without father or mother? Who do you know that is without husband or wife? Do you know of any or have you seen or heard of any without food, without clothing, or without a home? If you know none of these, how can you meet some? And most importantly, what can you do, what can I do to express God's love to them? Let's pray for God's grace.